Ian Lewis wouldn't have been wrong to scream when he discovered his garage had been graffitied. He'd have to go through the tedium of a police report. Then there was the backbreaking work of cleaning up the paint, or worse, the expense of an unexpected replacement. Plus the long-term damage, his hometown of Port Talbot, Wales, being labeled a bad neighborhood, an uptick in local crime and decreased property values. And while vandalism carries up to 10 years in prison in the UK, this only applies if the criminal is caught. In many cases, like Ian Lewis's, the vandal gets away with their crime, leaving the building's owner to deal with the damage. All this to say, in December 2019, Ian Lewis could have screamed, but he didn't. Instead, the man clicked out of Facebook and walked outside. He hadn't realized his garage was vandalized until the graffiti went viral. When he looked at the paint, Ian Lewis's grin couldn't have been wider. He stared at a piece of fine art worth millions painted on the side of his humble garage. Being a victim of vandalism had never been better because Ian Lewis was now in possession of a Banksy. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In this series, we're investigating the biggest mysteries in the art world. From a da Vinci worth nearly half a billion dollars to graffiti by the elusive Banksy, we'll look at the most notorious paintings on the planet and explore the secrets surrounding them. Today, in our final Art Mysteries episode, we're looking at one of the most famous and successful artists of our time, who also happens to be a notorious criminal. We're asking, who is Banksy? Why is he still hiding? And is Banksy just one of this artist's mysterious aliases? We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com.
In December 2019, Ian Lewis discovered his humble concrete garage had transformed into a tourist attraction worth millions. He'd been Banksied. And he was hardly the first. Banksy's graffiti had initially gained attention 20 years prior, in 1999. He'd been tagging buildings and developing a personal style for at least six years, anonymous and unnoticed. But when the locals of Bristol, England first saw his piece, The Mild Mild West, it felt like the art had popped out of nowhere. The Mild Mild West portrays a toy bear aiming a Molotov cocktail at riot police. It's signed in all caps, BANKSY. Throughout the next few years, similar pieces popped up around Bristol and in London, all signed BANKSY. Each piece was pure vandalism, often painted in well-trafficked areas across Bristol and London. And pretty soon, BANKSY found more rules to break. He started breaking into museums, but instead of stealing the art, he would hang his own pieces. Clearly, Banksy wanted to stick it to the establishment, and he wasn't alone. Within a few years, his distinctive stenciled style and tongue-in-cheek statements drew a large fan base. The public nature of his work meant anyone could be a Banksy fan. No need to buy tickets to a museum or gallery show. Banksy pieces were for everyone. But that didn't mean they weren't for sale. In the early 2000s, Banksy began selling prints and planning art shows. And even those threw the art world for a loop. In 2006, he scheduled a major show for Los Angeles. But instead of hanging his work in a gallery, Banksy hosted his pricey event in a warehouse on Skid Row, a neighborhood known for its many unhoused residents. Celebrities like Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie had the opportunity to spend hundreds of thousands on a Banksy original. They just have to come face to face with their city's homeless crisis on the way there. To hammer in the point, Banksy procured a live elephant and housed it in a custom-built living room set. Then, he covered the animal with paint to match the wallpaper. The elephant in the room. It symbolized poverty, like the poor and unhoused people the rich and famous had ignored as they'd flocked to Skid Row to spend a fortune on art. And rest assured, a fortune was spent. This was typical of Banksy, tongue-in-cheek and thought-provoking social commentary often featuring animals and increasingly making headlines. Other Banksy highlights include a painting that self-destructed once sold, a fake theme park that parodied Disneyland, and an image of a fine art auction where the art for sale reads, quote, I can't believe you morons actually buy this shit. Titled Morons, it sold in 2020 for over $100,000. Throughout the 2010s, Banksy became a household name, doing guest animation of sweatshop workers on The Simpsons and receiving an Oscar nomination for his street art documentary, Exit Through the Gift Shop. That decade, his pieces resold for over a million dollars, among the likes of Da Vinci and Van Gogh. He was one of the most famous living artists in the world, and yet no one knew who he was. 
You'd think a globally acclaimed artist would step into the spotlight to collect their laurels, but not everyone sees him as praiseworthy. To some, Banksy is a criminal mastermind. In 2008, a show organized by notable auction house Lyon and Turnbull tried to sell Banksy works taken off the street. The day before the auction, Banksy released a statement saying he refused to authenticate the pieces and would prefer if no one bought them. He didn't like that they'd been removed from their original settings. While much of the art world would say art has more value hanging in the Guggenheim than viewed on Google Maps, Banksy seemed to suggest the opposite. But without the artist's authentication ensuring the piece's provenance, no one wanted to buy them. Nearly half a million dollars worth of art went unsold. In one move, Banksy took control away from the elite, corrupt group at the top of the art world and placed it back in the hands of the artist. Bucking the elusive chain of history and provenance, Banksy disrupted the status quo of fine arts. More importantly, he threatened the wallets of some of the world's wealthiest people. And when you're angering the rich and powerful, staying anonymous doesn't seem like such a bad idea no matter how famous you're getting. And it's not just the ultra-rich who are upset with Banksy. Vandalism is a crime, and though Banksy's graffiti is sought after, it causes its own brand of headache for victims. Let's go back to Ian Lewis, whose garage in Port Talbot, Wales, was Banksied in December 2019. When Lewis first saw the piece, he loved it. One side of the wall showed a little girl dressed for a snowy day, tongue out to catch snowflakes. Around the corner, the rest of the painting showed a dumpster on fire. The white specks in the air weren't snowflakes, but ashes, and the cute little girl was slowly being poisoned. The painting was mostly black and white with two spots of color, the girl's pink tongue and the vibrant orange flames. The graffiti was striking, but Ian's enthusiasm didn't last long. Within a day, Banksy confirmed the work was his via Instagram. He posted a drone video zooming out from the painting to reveal the neighboring steel plant and the smoke drifting from its funnels. He titled it Season's Greetings. According to Daily Art magazine, the Port Talbot steel plant is the UK's largest And that year, it was considered the most polluted city in the United Kingdom. Like all of Banksy's work, this piece made a social statement. But however much the message may have been meant for all of Port Talbot, the art was on Ian's private property, which put him in the odd position of having to protect his vandalism from vandalism. After Banksy's confirmation, excited visitors poured in from across the globe, Some even tried chipping off pieces of the cinder block for a souvenir. But others wouldn't be content with a cement ship. They wanted to steal the whole Banksy, which meant stealing Ian's entire garage wall. It sounds ludicrous, but it's happened before. The high valuations on Banksy's art led to vanishing walls in Paris, Bristol, and the West Bank. One bold thief even tried to sell a Banksy he'd nabbed from his neighborhood wall on Antiques Roadshow. 
Ian Lewis didn't want to lose his garage wall, but amid the massive crowds, it was impossible to tell the difference between an art fan and an art thief. Ian was on his own. He told the BBC, quote, It's dropped a bomb on me. I'm actually managing an arts attraction by myself. I just can't cope. Though it made for an incredible story, Banksy had ruined Ian's hope for a peaceful Christmas. Luckily, after Ian's pleas for help, the city government came through with a wire fence, and Welsh actor Michael Sheen gifted Ian a private security guard over the Christmas holiday so he could finally get some sleep. Still, Ian's life had been completely upended, his street hosting an endless parade of strangers, and his garage rendered unusable. Whoever was responsible would be in legal hot water if they were ever caught. Which isn't likely. Banksy's gone on the record saying one of the reasons he does street art is for the, quote, thrill of getting away with it. He enjoys secretly making art, turning heads, and grabbing headlines. He's like the art world's Jack the Ripper. And like Jack the Ripper, Banksy gets more famous the longer he goes without being caught. In the art world, Fame is everything. So every year, Banksy has more motive to stay secret and more people who want to unmask him. Coming up, the search for Banksy begins. They say time heals all wounds, but sometimes time can do anything but. Welcome to Cold Cases, the new Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Carter Roy. Every Monday, join me as I revisit the clues and miscues of some of the most elusive criminal cases in history. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, each episode of Cold Cases explores the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Will justice be served? Only time will tell. Follow Cold Cases free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the 2010s, Banksy was the new Loch Ness Monster, a British-born mystery that splashed into pop culture and took the world by storm. Or, depending on who you asked, he was the new Jack the Ripper, a mysterious criminal grabbing headlines worldwide. Banksy's sightings and stories range from the UK to LA, the Middle East to Central Park East, but by and large, none are confirmable. Banksy's mystique made him all the more famous, which made the art all the more valuable, and the creator even harder to find. Unmasking Banksy has unified cops, journalists, internet sleuths, and even academics. 
In the mid-2010s, scholars from universities in the UK and US came together to try to identify Banksy using statistics. Led by Michelle V. Hauge, Mark D. Stevenson, Kim Rosmo, and Stephen C. Lacomber, the group named their project Tagging Banksy. They adopted complex scientific methods that could be used to stop terrorists and fight epidemics and applied them to catching the rebel artist. To start, they took GPS coordinates of 192 of Banksy's works. Though he'd graffitied all over the world, they focused on his early pieces, since those were more likely to be close to his home. They narrowed it down to art around Bristol and London. Next, they needed a motive, which can also be tied to location. Let's return to Ian Lewis one last time. Amid the logistical headaches of having a Banksy on his garage, Ian got rich. Within weeks, multiple buyers courted him about season's greetings. He eventually sold it for six figures, a life-changing windfall for a steelworker. And the new owner pledged that the art would remain on public display in Port Talbot for a few years. This spurred a street art boom. Since Banksy's arrival, Port Talbot's reputation has evolved from the most polluted city in the UK to the street art capital of Wales. So, while Banksy's vandalism was a crime in the short term, in the long term, it was often a gift. His entire ethos could be summed up as steal from the rich, give to the poor. He often installs valuable art in so-called bad neighborhoods at no cost to local residents and businesses. Then, that exact same art gives attention to local issues and sells for exorbitant prices. He's done this repeatedly, drawing attention and even cash to the West Bank, post-Hurricane Katrina New Orleans, and as we mentioned earlier, Skid Row. With this in mind, tagging Banksy could have zeroed in on suspects who are passionate about social justice, though that still left them with thousands of people. Where that failed, the most popular aspect of criminal profiling could play a role, a physical description. One of the few confirmed accounts of Banksy's appearance comes from an interview he did with The Guardian in 2003. This is the last, and perhaps only, in-person interview Banksy ever did. Back when Banksy wasn't well-known outside of the UK, journalist Simon Hattonstone sat down with the artist in a nondescript local pub. Hattonstone described Banksy as, quote, white, 28, scruffy casual, jeans, t-shirt, a silver tooth, silver chain, and silver earring. The profile is good, but when it comes to finding Banksy, it's nearly useless. The artist could be any one of hundreds of thousands of young, white, male UK residents. Banksy uses this to his advantage. His former agent and gallerist Steve Lazaridis said the artist often dressed as a construction or city worker or part of a film crew with assistants in similar costumes to sell the scene. The idea was anyone who saw the inconspicuous team would look right past them. And they always did, at least for the first decade. Since 2011, there have been increasing numbers of Banksy sightings and even a few unconfirmed photos and videos of the artist at work. 
As more people started looking for Banksy, he grew more secretive, only doing interviews via email, speaking through a representative, or an Instagram account. He has allowed a few confirmed photos and videos to circulate, most notably in Banksy Captured, a book Steve Lazaridis published after he officially stopped being Banksy's manager. Though they never show a clear face, the images line up with the description from the 2003 Guardian interview, a figure who's indistinguishable from thousands of other British men. It's not much, but here's what we can confirm about Banksy. 1. He started spray-painting in the 1990s. After an incident where he was almost caught, he realized he needed to paint faster. He took inspiration from French artist Blec Lerat and began using stencils. 2. Reported sightings and strategically faceless photographs confirm he's an average height, average-sized Brit with bushy, dirty blonde hair. 3. He favors watches and hoodies. 4. Banksy's an anti-capitalist humanitarian who uses art for the public good. And 5. It seems he's married. In Exit Through the Gift Shop, Banksy wears a wedding ring, and during the COVID-19 lockdowns, he graffitied his bathroom with the caption, my wife hates it when I work from home. It's a slim profile at best. With such limited information, the tagging Banksy team borrowed criminal profiling techniques used to, quote, prioritize large lists of suspects in cases of serial crime such as murder, rape, and arson. In simplest terms, their formula analyzes a series of crimes and estimates where the criminal might strike next. But with a little tweaking, it could also suggest where a suspect might live or hang out. The researchers use statistics and geography to create clusters of known Banksy art locations. Based on their projections, 95% of the art should have been within two kilometers of somewhere Banksy frequented, like his home, office, or favorite coffee shop. This gave them a list of addresses around Bristol. Then, they just had to compare those addresses with known locations of possible suspects. To test their hypothesis, the team input public records surrounding a popular Banksy suspect. His typical haunts included his current and former homes, his old secondary school, and the fields where he played recreational soccer. The computer turned up hit after hit putting this man in the top 10% of Banksy suspects. His name, Robin Gunningham. Robin matches the sparse physical description of Banksy and grew up in the same hometown, Bristol. He was known by some in the Bristol art scene in the 90s, but not a lot is public about his life otherwise. From what little we know, he comes across as an average middle-class guy. People began to suspect Robin Gunningham in the mid-2000s after he was photographed with stencils and spray paint in Jamaica. Around that same time, Banksy's popped up in Jamaica. It felt like more than a coincidence. Another detail that feels too convenient. Robin's wife, Joy Millward. Her homes prior to their marriage also fell in the top 10% of tagging Banksy's likely Banksy locations. 
But the most interesting detail about Joy is her career as a charity lobbyist and activist. We've already mentioned the Robin Hood ethos around Banksy's art, but as Banksy got bigger, so did his activism. In 2015, he built Dismaland, an anti-consumerism parody of Disneyland. After the park's five-week run, the entire thing was dismantled and the raw materials were used to build homeless shelters for migrants in France. In 2017, Banksy opened a hotel in Bethlehem. Its profits support people who suffered during the Israel-Palestine conflict. And in 2019, the graffitist opened a pop-up called Gross Domestic Product, where he sold official Banksy merchandise. He used the proceeds to buy a yacht, but not for himself. It's chartered to help migrants and refugees on the Mediterranean find safe new homes. So how does this connect to Robin Gunningham and Joy Millward? Through her consulting firm, Joy has worked with various charities, including We Belong, Refugee Council, and Open Society Foundations, all of which work to help young immigrants and those facing civil unrest. The very same issues Banksy is passionate about. His recent projects required a level of strategy and experience that would be beyond the average person. And Joy Millward certainly has the know-how and network to pull off stunts like building homeless shelters with the raw materials from Dismaland or chartering a yacht to help migrants reach safety. Funny enough, no one ever suggests Joy herself could be Banksy. Even Google's official search result lists her as Banksy's wife. Instead, the UK tabloids laser focus on Robin, perhaps because his backstory has the most evidence. Some claim as a teen, he used the nom de plume Robin Banks, which was possibly later shortened to Banksy. Robin Gunningham's father has actively denied the rumors. And when tagging Banksy put together a press release on their findings, they heard from Banksy's legal team. It was eventually approved by the graffitist lawyers. And while the final paper discusses Robin Gunningham's possible double life as a street artist, it makes no formal accusations. Ultimately, it reminds readers there are many, many Banksy suspects. One expert, Carlo McCormick, told Artnet News there was only a 75% chance Gunningham is Banksy. The odds are good, but far from bulletproof. And while he's a compelling suspect, others are equally intriguing. They range from local celebrities, like a Welsh city councilman who was forced to resign after Banksy rumors, to one of the founders of Gorillaz. For those who are unfamiliar, Gorillaz is a music project by Jamie Hewlett and Damon Albarn with a band composed of animated characters. Gorillaz occasionally features other artists' work in their videos, including Banksy. That's not the only connection. Banksy created cover art for Gorillaz founder Damon Albarn's other project, Blur. And Jamie Hewlett once shared a gallerist with Banksy. If Hewlett isn't Banksy, he knows Banksy. 
But the real kicker is the money trail. Around 2018, an anonymous forensic expert decided to do a dig into Banksy's finances. He noted that for years, Banksy sold works through a publisher of street artists called Pictures on Walls. Notably, Jamie Hewlett was also involved in the publishing house. But in the 2000s, Banksy had to start copywriting pieces to address the growing number of knockoffs saturating the art market. This put him in a catch-22. A copyright filing requires a verified government identity, but revealing himself could lead to fines, jail time, or worst of all, losing his fame. So he started a shell company to authenticate his works, which he named Pest Control. Beyond pest control and pictures on walls, there's also Paranoid Pictures, the production company for Exit Through the Gift Shop. So the anonymous forensic expert had a decent amount of public records to dig through. But the connections were obvious immediately. Paranoid Pictures is a subsidiary of pest control. Pest control is owned by pictures on walls, And Pictures on Walls is majority owned by one Jay Hewlett. This could mean Jamie Hewlett, the guerrillas artist. Now, while reporting on these claims, journalists at UK news site Metro reached out to Banksy's publicist. Over email, the publicist answered, I can confirm that Jamie Hewlett is not the artist Banksy. However, she spelled Hewlett's last name wrong. Not a likely mistake for a professional publicist. So perhaps the misspelling was intentional, a way to deny the rumors without technically lying. Once again, the evidence is compelling, but we can't confirm the speculation either way. And the tagging Banksy team and anonymous forensicists aren't the only people looking for Banksy. In 2016, a Scottish journalist and graduate student decided to find Banksy for a homework assignment and produced a compelling theory. Craig Williams used a similar method to tagging Banksy, tracing the appearance of the artist's works across North America. He spotted an odd trend. Banksy's works followed the same route as the touring band, Massive Attack. Layered atop each other, the dates and locations lined up. It was the beginning of a series of coincidences. Massive Attack is based out of Bristol, and their lead singer, Robert Del Naya, used to tag the local streets using the name 3D. He officially retired from street art, but Banksy has actually cited 3D as an inspiration. It's possible that while 3D retired, Del Naya didn't. He just became Banksy, or works for or with him. Interestingly, Del Naya runs in the same circles as our other suspects. He's been photographed with Robin Gunningham and done charity work with Damon Albarn of Gorillaz. The two men visited the Democratic Republic of the Congo together and recorded in studios in the suburbs of Mali's capital, Bamako, in the late 2000s. In 2009, Possible Banksy works were found in Bamako and shared online. And get this, one of the animated gorillas in Gorillas is named 2D, perhaps inspired by street artist 3D. 
Delnaya also supports the Hoping Foundation, which helps Palestinian children, much like Banksy's Waldorf Hotel. And unlike other suspects, Delnaya coyly confirmed the rumors, sort of. At a concert in Bristol, he said, We are all Banksy. Maybe he meant that more literally than anyone realized. Coming up, perhaps Banksy isn't a solo artist. He's a band. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Now, back to the story. In 2016, Scottish journalist and graduate student Craig Williams published his attempt to find Banksy, and he proposed a new theory. Several Banksy suspects know each other because they are all working together as Banksy. He isn't an artist. He's an art project. Craig believes there was an original Banksy, but as the elusive graffitis took off, he recruited more artists to help make more art and do more humanitarian work. That collective likely includes Robert Del Naya, Jamie Hewlett, and Damon Albarn, among others. And by one interpretation, Robert Del Naya has admitted it, saying, we're all Banksy. It's a compelling explanation, and to no one's surprise, Craig Williams is now a professional journalist. Beyond the social connections, there's also some evidence from Banksy himself to back this possibility up. In the HBO documentary Banksy Does New York, the artist produces street art across the city in the span of one month, and he admits it requires more than one artist to pull that off. It's possible he just meant Banksy designed and created all the stencils, then sent someone else to tape them to the wall and spray paint. The easy part, as long as they don't get caught. This isn't unheard of in the art world. Andy Warhol produced many of his greatest works at a place he called The Factory, because he had so many assistants working under his direction. And in Banksy's documentary, Exit Through the Gift Shop, One of the street artists he profiles uses a team to create pieces for his gallery show. It's also noteworthy that at least two of the suspects work in the music industry. In the music world, it's not uncommon for an artist to have multiple bands or projects. Each will have a different name, so if you aren't looking closely, you'll think they're unrelated. For example, singer Ben Gibbard has released songs with both Death Cab for Cutie and The Postal Service. 
If Banksy is Gorilla's founder Jamie Hewlett, Massive Attack frontman Robert Del Naya, or a collective of artist-musicians, it'd feel natural to apply this music standard, inventing different aliases for each group or style. Essentially, different brands. And if there's a group of people behind Banksy, it's possible they're behind other street artists too. Because it appears one of his ongoing projects isn't just graffiti, it's an entirely different person, Mr. Brainwash. Mr. Brainwash came onto the scene in 2010, introduced to much of the world through Banksy's film Exit Through the Gift Shop. Ostensibly, the feature starts as a documentary about street artists produced by a man named Thierry Guetta. But on Banksy's suggestion during an interview, Thierry takes up street art himself. He picks the pseudonym Mr. Brainwash, which already sounds like it could be the title of a Banksy piece. Thierry's more interested in becoming an artist than actually making art. His first tags are literally an image of his face. And overall, his style fluctuates between knocking off Andy Warhol and knocking off Banksy. He enlists teams of underpaid art students to help execute his visions, doing little of the painting himself. Mr. Brainwash organizes an over-the-top art show, which Banksy documents in Exit Through the Gift Shop. It's almost a disaster. With just hours to go before the show, the art had yet to be installed, with pieces still incomplete. Worse, crowds were already gathering around the Los Angeles warehouse. Incredibly, the immense team working under Mr. Brainwash pulled the show together in time, proving Thierry's really got it. Or any artist can be successful if they have a team of talented people working overtime to prop them up. Either way, Mr. Brainwash made a million dollars in art sales from his first show. Since 2010, he's continued to sell pieces. And as of 2022, he has over a million Instagram followers. If we take it at face value, the Thierry Guetta we see on screen is a real person, and his success proves a theme prevalent across Banksy's work. I can't believe you morons actually buy this shit. Or if we look a little deeper, Mr. Brainwash might be an elaborate piece of performance art, and Thierry Guetta a wonderful actor. Again, it says, I can't believe you morons actually buy this shit. The most obvious clue is the art itself. Taste is subjective, and as we've discussed in this series, art's value lies in what people are willing to pay for it. But Mr. Brainwash's work looks like Banksy parodying himself. It includes similar iconography, Red Heart balloons, men throwing paint instead of grenades, and a ripoff of Andy Warhol's Marilyn Monroe screen prints using Kate Moss's face. Then there's Thierry's persona. Early on in Exit Through the Gift Shop, he shows off the vintage store his family runs. The film emphasizes the massive upcharge on the clothes. Business is business, but its inclusion in the documentary feels intentional, raising questions similar to those we've been asking in this series. How do we ascribe value to art? And is that gray area an opening for fraud? 
it gets deeper. Exit Through the Gift Shop features Thierry's family, and an internet breadcrumb trail leads to his son, Jacques Guetta. While this should validate his identity, Jacques' extremely limited online presence is as an L.A.-based artist and photographer. Known as Hijack, his pieces seem awfully similar to his dad's work and Banksy's. It's possible the people behind Banksy have now created not one, but three fake artists. Banksy, Mr. Brainwash, and Hijack. And if we view Banksy as an art project rather than an artist, the timing of Mr. Brainwash makes perfect sense. Exit Through the Gift Shop came out shortly after Banksy became an art world icon. Though his street art was born of anti-establishment sentiment, his work grew to become part of the establishment. By the 2010s, Brad Pitt was reportedly commissioning him for private works. He had to hire intermediaries to secure permission before he tagged painted buildings for fear of being outed. And other artists were starting to turn on him. In their minds, he wasn't a guerrilla artist. He was a sellout. Of course, this is a typical reaction to anything popular. There will always be those who hate art just because it's making millions of dollars. But the shift in sentiment accompanying his massive popularity changed who Banksy could be. Maybe he wanted to create art outside his existing persona. Or maybe he was tired of being Banksy. Or perhaps he wanted to cheekily strike back at everyone who called him a hack. In all cases, he may have created a new brand, Mr. Brainwash. And if that's the case, Exit Through the Gift Shop has a double meaning, both as the commercialized way out of a museum and a way for Banksy to stop being Banksy. The strongest argument for this explanation actually comes from Thierry Guetta himself. He once told the LA Times, quote, In the end, I became Banksy's biggest work of art. Whoever he may be, for over 20 years, Banksy has straddled the line between street art and fine art. As his pieces sold for millions at auction, he continued to, quote-unquote, vandalize, raising questions about whether crime should be defined by an action alone or its results. The debate over who owns art and why that ownership matters continues. When people try to own and quantify a work of his, it tends to end badly. Rich people lose millions of dollars, and poor people lose the opportunity to view the piece. Graffiti is illegal because it's often hateful, damaging, and ugly. In addition to all the troubles we mentioned poor Ian Lewis facing at the beginning of our episode. But if graffiti has a meaningful message, looks good, and boosts local tourism, it's not harming someone. It's adding property value. Sure, Banksy's art is criminal, but overnight, he gave Ian Lewis an incredible story and a six-figure nest egg. You could call it an act of charity, just like the already allows anyone on the street to view for free. Still, his work is a gray area and a threat to the art world establishment. So Banksy stays secret to avoid being arrested, fined, or worst of all, stopped. And in this case, 
Banksy's identity is better left unexplained. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Maggie Admire, edited by Amber Von Schassen and Angela Jorgensen, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Chelsea Wood, and produced by Travis Clark. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Hi, I'm Carter Roy, host of the Spotify original from ParCast, Cold Cases. From burglary and arson to kidnappings and murder, explore the many types of crime, the many ways they remain unsolved, and how long it takes to find the answers, if ever. Catch a new episode of Cold Cases every Monday. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.